0: Hi, everyone. We're going to have our Bible reading now, and we're going to be continuing our time in the book of Ephesians, looking at the first part of chapter four. So Ephesians chapter four, verses one to 16. As a prisoner for the Lord, then I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling you have received. Be completely humble and gentle. Be patient, bearing with one another in love. When he ascended on high, he took many captives and gave gifts to his people. What does he ascended mean? Except that he also descended to the lower earthly regions. He who descended is the very one who ascended higher than all the heavens in order to fill the whole universe. So Christ himself gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the pastors and teachers Instead, speaking the truth in love, we will grow to become in every respect the mature body of him who is the head, that is Christ. From him, the whole body, joined and held together by every supporting ligament, grows and builds itself up in love as each part does its work.
1: So is the church any different to any other club or group that we can belong to? Uh, Is it different from, you know, a sporting club like a a netball team or a footy team or a basketball team or a mother's play group or a book reading club or the CFS or Neighbourhood Watch or or even a a club at university? Uh, I've always thought that the Adelaide University Chocolate Eating Society, that'd be a good club to belong to. I mean, they're all bound together by common interest, you know, in sports or books or Kids or fighting fires or chocolate or... And Christians, I mean, we're linked by a common interest too, aren't we, in God? You might say, well, no. I mean, Christians and churches, they are different. For example, we love one another. Didn't Jesus say, though, no, you're my followers because of your love for one another? And it's true. I mean, I've experienced deep love as part of a Christian community. But if I'm honest... I've also experienced profound pain as well. And don't people experience love and care in other clubs? Uh, my parents, they joined a bowls club when they retired. It was a group that bowled together, they ate together, they regularly went to each other's funerals. Uh, they looked out for each other. Uh, I can remember my parents going around to a home to care for a bedridden wife while her husband got out for a break. Christians you might say well they're different because they don't fight and you know there goes another flock of pigs you know flying overhead I mean we all have our schools don't we our our petty tiffs it's the same in any club and the bowls club they had their factions and they complained about the green keeper there was always some underlying sort of politics so is there any difference there should be shouldn't there I mean, if the truths of Ephesians 1 to 3 are as profound as we've seen, then surely it will make our community look different. And it does. As we head into the second half of the book of Ephesians, chapters 4, 5 and 6, we explore the distinguishing marks of Christian community. Today, what we're going to look at is the foundation for our shared life. And that's in the first half of Ephesians chapter 4. And then in the coming weeks, we're going to explore the practicalities, the way the gospel affects marriage and parenting, the way we think, the way we speak, our priorities, in fact, just about everything. So let's get going. What actually holds a Christian community, a church, together? Now, we are a common interest group, but can I say it's not our common interest in God that holds us together? It's actually God's uncommon interest in us. I want you to notice how Ephesians 4 begins. As a prisoner for the Lord, then, I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling that you've received. Now, here you can almost overlook one of the key words, uh, then. And it really should be at the start of the sentence, and it should be emphasized a bit more. You know, Therefore. Paul is saying in the light of everything that we've explored about what God has done for us in Jesus, chapters 1, 2, and 3, this is how you should live. Therefore, given everything God has done for you in Christ, live worthy of your calling. Now, what's the calling that's being spoken of here? If we went back to a place like Ephesians chapter 1 and verse 4, we're told there that God has chosen us in Christ before the foundation of the earth. And notice that it's God who chooses us and not the other way around. He chose a very diverse and strange mixture of people, uh, not only people without any, anything in common, but actually people who hated each other's guts. Now, we saw that in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 11 and 12. Therefore, remember that formerly you who were Gentiles by birth and called the uncircumcised by those who call themselves the circumcision, remember that at that time you were separate from Christ, excluded from citizenship in Israel and foreigners to the covenant of promise without hope and without God in the world. Now, We've already looked at the massive divide that existed between Jews and Gentiles. And the whole point is that these groups just despised each other. I mean, think Donald Trump and Joe Biden supporters or, you know, crows and power supporters. You know, I read in the advertiser this week, a journalist said he was supportive about the AFL grand final being played at Adelaide Oval. He said the only downside was that it would make power supporters even more insufferable now let me say I don't hold this view I'm only repeating it but but when it comes to church we do tend to think of it as a a voluntary club I mean we choose which church we attend don't we but you know the overriding truth is that God chooses us and whatever church you attend it will only have believers who were chosen by God you never get to choose your brothers and sisters in Christ. And at the end of the day, you'll be around the throne in heaven, not with people you wanted to associate with, but with the people that God has chosen. We go back to verse 1. We're told to walk worthy of the calling that we've received. Uh, What does that mean? Well, when you go to verse 3, it's explained in some detail. Make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. Now notice here we're to maintain unity as God's people. Now we don't create the unity, God creates that, but it is clear that we are to make every effort to keep it, to maintain it. And I think the assumption here is that it's not straightforward. It requires determined effort. Now, how do you do that? How do we stick together Well, in this chapter, we get two contrasting pictures of a mature and an immature church. Firstly, when you turn to verse 14, you get this picture of the immature church. Look at verse 14 with me. Then we'll no longer be infants tossed back and forth by the waves and blown here and there by every wind of teaching and by the cunning and craftiness of people in their deceitful scheming. Uh, the infant church is shaky when it comes to its hold on the truth. It's at risk, uh, just like if you let toddlers go wandering into a surf which has rips and three-metre three waves. Uh, I can remember when my, my kids were in primary school, Sue and I, we took them to a surf beach on the central coast of New South Wales. And the boys at that stage, they were five and nine years of age, they were really keen to go on with their boogie boards. And the surf was pretty rough. They weren't used to it. So I told them to stay really close to the shore. Now, it felt like I only took my eyes off them for a couple of seconds, but when I looked up, there they were about 100 metres offshore in these two metre ways, and I just panicked. And I jumped in the water, I was racing out. As I was swimming out, the youngest, David, he came through on a wave, just whooping with delight. woohoo! You know, he was so excited. But no, no Ben, right, the nine-year-old. So I swam out further to where he was, and he'd been dumped by this huge wave and he had this miserable look on his face and he said to me, sorry, Dad, David drowned. You know? Now, we all know surf. It's dangerous for kids. Immature churches, they're those that get tossed around by the ways of false doctrine. But notice the contrast with the mature church that follows, right? Verse 15. Instead, speaking the truth in love will grow to become in every respect the mature body of him who is the head, that is, Christ. You see, if we want to grow to maturity, if we want to maintain unity, we need to speak the truth in love. Now, what is that? It's not just being um, honest. You know, uh, if we went to... Uh, Ephesians 4, verse 25, it says, put off falsehood and speak truthfully to your neighbor. Now, we all know that lying is not a great way to build trust in relationships. But here in verse 15, the, the truthing on view is not so much to do with um, straight-out honesty, but to do with the gospel. Uh, back in verses 4 and 4, 5, and 6 of this chapter, remember, it talks about there being one body. You know, one spirit, one hope, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all. Yet the the true thing going on here in verse 15 is to constantly remind one another of all that God has done for us in Christ. He's won peace for us on the cross, uh, peace with himself through the forgiveness of sins and also peace with one another. We share one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father. And if we want to maintain and grow in our unity to be mature, it will happen as we grow in the gospel. But we see in that verse, verse 15, where to truth in love. What does that mean? Truth in love. Often people can contrast the truth and love being spoken of here. You know, this church, it is big on the truth. You know, we have much biblical head knowledge. Uh, that's, that's one side of the equation. And then on the other side, no, no, our church is a loving church. Now, we care for one another. But here in verse 15, they're, they're inseparable. They're bound together. It's truthing in love or loving truthing. You know, you, you can't know love unless you know truth, and you can't say that you know the truth and not love. It's always loving to work out our life around the gospel. If you go back to chapter 4, verse 2, look at what it says there. Be completely humble and gentle. Be patient, bearing with one another in love. Paul the Apostle, he speaks in verse 1 of being a prisoner for the Lord. He's in jail because he loves other people. He spoke the truth of the gospel, and that cost him his comfort, his security, and ultimately his life. Humility is not um, letting other people go through a door before you do, but humility is when the goal of glorifying Jesus dominates your shared ambitions and goals. It goes on, it talks about bearing with one another in love. Now, I I like the old translation here at this point, long-suffering. It's to bear with one another when we sin against each other, to reflect the the character of God. I mean, God's long-suffering, isn't he? He doesn't write us off because we're sinners. Instead, what he does is he sends his son to die for our sins. Now, that, that is the height of long suffering. And if we are to maintain unity, then it will involve seeing the truth of the gospel expressing itself with that sort of love. But also, I want you to notice the, the emphasis when we come to this idea of truthing in love on God's word being foundational in order to build the church. You see, if truthing in love is central, then it won't surprise us to see that that's the focus in this passage, you know, the word of God to build the church. Go to uh, verse 7 with me. It says, To each one of us grace has been given just as Christ portioned it. Now, Christ has gifted his church with people to serve. When you go to verse 8, you notice there that Psalm 68 is quoted. When he ascended on high, he took many captives and he gave gifts to his people. Now this Psalm 68 is painting a picture of a king, a victorious king returning home with the spoils of victory and the vanquished, those he's conquered in a train behind him. Uh, Victory over the enemy. And when Jesus ascended from the dead, he conquered the devil, and he gave gifts to his church so it could be built and grow to maturity. Then we see those gifts uh, elaborated when you get to verse eleven. Christ Himself gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelisms, the evangelists, the pastors, and the teachers. And there are various gifts when you go through the New Testament, and they're often quite diverse. But only some gifts are mentioned here in Ephesians four. But notice the ones here are all word of God gifts. Now, why is that? Well, it's making a simple point that if a church is to grow in unity, it will be because the word of God is foundational to our life and relationships. If we're going to love one another, it will be because the word of God shapes everything we do. Now, does that mean that those with Bible teaching gifts are more important to our church? you know, those who teach our children or our youth or run Bible studies or preach on Sundays or whatever. Now, can I say the people are no more important, but we do treasure the gifts that they've been given because they're essential if we're going to grow to maturity. Verse 13. So that the body of Christ may be built up until we all reach unity in the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God and become mature. So what are the threats to unity? Let me talk about a couple. Firstly, let me say, if you have no truth, you can have no unity. I had a conversation with another pastor not that long ago. We're talking about the death of Jesus on the cross. And I mentioned the fact that Jesus on the cross Uh, He died to take the punishment for the sin uh, that we have all committed, uh, the punishment that we all deserve. Now, this other pastor said to me that he thought that was an antiquated and barbaric notion that had no place in Christian thinking at all. He said it was more akin to child abuse. Now, how do I maintain unity at this point when we have such diametrically opposed views? I mean, if I insist that Jesus died for sin, am I creating disunity with another believer? And the answer is no, because we had no unity to begin with. God calls us by the gospel. Jesus' death and resurrection, he calls us into his family, the church. Therefore, if you deny the gospel, you're not in the body and therefore the disagreement is not a breakdown of unity. So what I'm to do at that point is to work out how I can help the person that I disagree with to engage afresh with the gospel so that they can believe. Of course, there's always a danger that we'll have division on non-truth issues, and there are some things we might feel passionate about, but at the end of the day, they aren't gospel truth issues. Um, sometimes it's an issue where division doesn't matter. Uh, some of the staff here at Trinity and in the various churches, they're passionate about Mac computers and others use alternatives. Uh, Chris Jolliffe and I, we're both divided at this point. I feel sorry for Chris. But in the end, it's a who cares, you know, matter. It doesn't really matter at all. But then there are some issues that Christians are prepared to divide over which are things they feel strongly about, even if they aren't primary gospel concerns. Now, hear me clearly here. We, we can make something more important to us than it is to God. Uh, so over the years, uh, churches have divided over the application uh, of various doctrines. Baptism, uh, how much water should we use and what age should we use it? Uh, questions of church governance, how that should be done. But, you know, the one I've noticed that creates the most tension is actually over music. Uh, I can remember in the church in the city some years ago that people told me they were extraordinarily angry and were leaving the church when we went from having four hymns that were played on an organ to having two hymns on the organ and two songs with a guitar. See, what, what sort of music does God like? Now, let me say, it could be a truth issue. Uh, If the lyrics don't line up with the scriptures, that could create a problem. I had a friend come over recently who played me a song that they just loved on on the television. It was off YouTube. And it was a really catchy song, all about faith. But at the end of the day, this song emphasised that faith was a matter of trusting in God. And if you did that, then god promised that you would be healed from every sickness and every struggle and every difficulty that you had in this world if only you had enough faith you see at that problem at that stage there was a problem with the lyrics because they didn't match what the bible actually says but on the other hand let me say musical style is not a truth issue or a gospel issue fine to have a preference about the music you like, but it isn't fine to make it a central issue and to divide over it. Now, the other sort of threats we can have to unity are where there's no love. I think I mentioned at the start that, like all of you, I've known pain in Christian community. I can remember when Sue and I had a stillbirth before our eldest was born. We turned up to church the following Sunday and a middle-aged lady, she came up to us with a big smile on, our face, on her face and she said, don't worry, you'll be able to have another one. Now, I know she was trying to be kind, but her pastoral technique sucked. You know? And as we walked home, Sue, my wife, who was one of the world's kindest and most generous and placid people, she turned to me and said, I had this overwhelming urge to punch her lights out. And we mentally crossed her off our Christmas card list. And you probably know that sort of experience, where you feel pain and hurt and you draw away and you store up anger and you stew on it and it just eats away at you. You see, at that moment, what was the biggest threat to our our unity or our fellowship? Well, Sue and I had not been loved proper, properly, right? Actually, that wasn't the biggest threat. It was, actually, it was the other way around. The risk was that Sue and I were not willing to be long-suffering. You see, unity among God's people means that when you're sinned against or hurt or offended, that you bear with one another and you forgive as the Lord has forgiven you. Churches, we're, we're families of forgiven sinners. We're not families of the sinless. I mean, do you deserve God's forgiveness? Now, just in case you're wondering, no, none of us do. So you can never withhold it from someone else. Don't do that with you? you. see, because when you fail to forgive, you deny the truth of the gospel and you destroy the unity among God's people. So can I ask, are are you eager to maintain unity among the people of God? Chapter 4, verse 3 says, make every effort to keep the unity of the spirit through the bond of peace. Now, why should we work so hard at unity? Well, it's because the church it's central to God's eternal purposes, and it is really important to Him. And you know, what's important to God should also be really important to us. I um, want to show you this uh, this family heirloom. It's an urn planter, pot vase type thing, and it's been passed down from generation to generation in Sue's family. Uh, we received it from Sue's great aunt. And I want to say it is quite extraordinary, isn't it? Now, I want you to imagine that uh, we had it valued and discovered it was worth $1.1 million. Now, I I probably wouldn't let the grandkids use it for cricket stumps, at least not anymore, right? I'd take care of it because it has a certain preciousness or or value to it. Can I say, how, how much more... Our church and our relationships with one another? How much more? We aren't a a common interest group like Probus or the the Philatelist Society. The church, God's people, it is precious to Him. And it's central to all that God has been doing for all eternity. You know, at the end of the age, the church will endure. The church. God's family, he sent his son into the world to die and rise from the dead to redeem us. So my brothers and sisters in Christ, be very careful, be very, very careful how we steward and care, how we build that which is precious to our God. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you have shown great mercy to us in your son, You're building your church. You're gathering people from every tribe, nation and tongue, uh, bringing them into your family. And we know that your church, your people are so precious to you. Now, Father, we pray that we will be centred on your word and on the gospel as we gather together, as we keep thinking about our family relationships. And Heavenly Father, we pray you'll help us uh, to treat it as precious to you, our relationships in Christ as important to you and therefore important to us, and that we'll go and make every effort to maintain our unity in the truth and love of the gospel as we work it out together. And we do pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.